Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, Happy New Year. Hard to believe we're not even two weeks into the year and so much has happened already, but we are uh, excited to jump into this new series uh, on pillars. Now, what is a pillar? A pillar has been defined as a person or thing regarded as reliably providing essential support. Person or thing regarded as relying and providing essential support. We, we look to pillars in our daily lives. They literally hold up the building in which we're standing in right now. We can see those pillars right here in the church. Um, but a pillar is not just what holds up the physical building, but is what holds up the movement of the church as well. And in order for us to be pillars, we have to also establish the key pillars of faith and faithfulness in our lives. Now at Bridge, we've identified five of those in particular, which we have found to be essential for helping someone become established, establish themselves as a faithful and fruitful Christian. The first is prayerful. The second is biblical, then grateful. The fourth, unified or unity. And the fifth, aligned. And these pillars are things that we're going to jump into. And as we enter into this corporate fast together, we want all of our hearts and our minds to kind of be back to focus uh, to what are those basic foundations that we need in order to grow. Because you see, these pillars are essential to holding you up. God uses these pillars to hold you up. In fact, when the world feels like it's falling apart. Now, for some of us, it felt like that last week, that the world was falling apart. On Wednesday, just a few days ago, after months of outrage and and anger and stoking those flames with lies and deception, the president dispatched a crowd, which became an angry mob, to the Capitol building. They scaled the walls, broke through and the, the, the gates, and they, and they threatened the lives of government officials. Five are dead now, and the nation is shaken. We need pillars. But and for many of us, it kind of, some people were shocked and, and even very surprised, but I'm here to tell you tonight that God was not surprised. In fact, we actually have a specific uh, example of what to do and how to respond in a faithful way in the midst of when chaos is going around you. And in fact, I had chosen this text prior to knowing what would happen because God was already involved. Because you see, this isn't the first time that this has happened in history and probably won't be the last. So we're going to look at 
the story of Nehemiah. We're just going to look at him as an example of how to respond faithfully in the midst of crisis around you and, and how this pillar of prayer in particular can be essential in helping build you up. So in, in Nehemiah chapter one, verse one, we read these words. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Now, now we jump right into the story, so I'm going to have to set this up for you. You see, about 150 years before this moment, in 605 BC, the walls of Jerusalem were also scaled the city was ransacked, the gates were burned, and the people were driven into exile. The, the, the Jews, the, the people of God, the people, the, the, the covenant. And they were captured and sent away, a thousand of miles away, to Babylon. And they were there for so long that they actually outlived and outlasted their captors. And, and Babylon was then seized by another empire, another kingdom called Persia. Y'all right remember, we did a sermon series uh, about a year ago on the Daniel. And Daniel was, was, was under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. And, and now here we have Nehemiah under another king of Persia named Xerxes. Now, the thing about the Persians is the way that they ruled was a bit different than the Babylonians. The Babylonians wanted everyone away. They wanted to destroy all the culture and have everyone become Babylonian. Well, the Persians had a different type of approach. They said, you know, as long as you pay your tribute and you know who's running things, we'll let you kind of do your thing at home. And so they allowed some of the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and to establish things. And, and Nehemiah was aware of this he was not one of the ones that could go, though. He was, you know, like a, he, he had to work in the king's court. But make no mistake about it, he had no option to leave. He was a slave there. And so when he happens by these men, when he happens by Hananiah, he is desperate to learn of the news and hoping to hear some good reports about what happened when these exiles went back from Persia to Jerusalem. And this is what he finds out in verse three. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great tr trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. There was no good news to be had. What he heard cut him to the core. The people, he says, came back to Jerusalem and now they were in disgrace and they were also in trouble. You see, just when they thought new year, new me, just when they thought a new leadership would change the situation and somehow make things better again, they found out things got just as bad. The people were in great trouble and disgrace. Why? Why disgrace? Well, it tells us right there, the wall was broken down. The gates were burnt with fire. And we saw this week what it looks like, what it feels like when a threat is at the gates of your very uh, source of, 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 of influence as a, as a nation. 
when people just massively walk through disregarding all security and creating threats. And that type of destruction is not only something that puts you in trouble, but in disgrace. There's a, a sense of shame, a sense of embarrassment that comes with that. We saw this week many people who were in positions that was like, well, what happened to the to the police response? What happened to the, the security response? And several people have stepped down and resigned their positions because of the failure and being in disgrace. So it, it's, so it should come to no surprise that when Nehemiah hears these words, he is burdened and he is broken. And look at his reaction in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's, he hears this news and he is overwhelmed and overcome. And, and one of the most neglected things in attempting to build the pillar of prayer in our lives is just letting the moment wash over us in this thing called silence. You see, we've been conditioned to think that uh, somehow I must fill every word, uh, every, every moment with prayer with my own words. That I must perform in such a way to dis- demonstrate to God my, my piety and, and my sense of righteousness. So I, I start to talk with these and thous and, and, and I start to use language and vocabulary I would never use because of course he wants to be uh, impressed with me. But that's not what we see here with Nehemiah. No, that's not the foundation of prayer. It's, it's this place of allowing the moment to wash over you. He wept and he mourned, it says, for days. Sometimes we just got to be silent. Sometimes we just got to be in a place where we just, just don't even know what to say and, and, and just allow God to speak to us. And through prayer, God invites your tears and he invites your fears. He invites your anger and your rage And Nehemiah weeps and he mourns, he cries, and he maybe even cusses. The walls, and why? Because the walls were not down by people. You see, it wasn't like a wind just came and blew. It wasn't a natural disaster. Just like we saw, he saw, he could envision people burning down these walls. He could envision people tearing down these gates. And and, and it went against his very sense of the hope that they had for Israel. You see, there had been this promise that they were holding on to that, oh man, maybe now we're going back. Clearly, this is how God is going to answer his promise of of exile and, and restoring us back to prominence. So this was a theological issue too. Wait a minute, how how do I understand God's faithful presence in the midst of this news that I got? And what do I say about these people who are oppressing my people? And these haters, what, what, what do I do with that? Like all of this is going on. And here's the key point. It was welcomed by God. God reaches us where we are. He's not looking for you to perform some type of, you know, special words and incantations to make yourself look pious. It's like, yo, meet me where you are. How you're feeling right now, where you are at. And that's why our purpose statement is to reach people where they are and to help us grow. We're trying to reflect Jesus in the way that, in the posture and the perspective of God in our lives and reflecting that back to the world. 
And, and, and look at the detail in these first couple of verses. Do you realize it says in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of Xerxes, we know exactly when he wrote this. This is 445 BC. Kislev in, in the Jewish calendar would have been last month. We can actually have a picture of when it is. And that means it, God is specific in caring about our unique situations. Prayer invites us to authentically connect to God. And that's why our process as a church involves connecting to God, growing with family and serving our city. Prayer is laced throughout that. I can't connect to God authentically if I'm not talking to him. I can't grow with family if I don't share with them what is burdening my heart and we pray together. I don't even know how to serve my city if I don't ask God's wisdom and direction and perspective. And so we have to ask ourselves, is my first response to post about it or to pray about it? <laughs> Sometimes we're so invested in, in the conversations that people are having that we don't even know that we're less invested in the conversation of the God who knows us. Give him 280 characters of your thoughts and your intentions and your affections. Give him a story in your newsfeed. Give him an opportunity to, to, to hear what's going on in your heart and your mind. I love what Priscilla Shire said. She said, prayer is what opens up the floodgates of God to come down and be involved in our everyday circumstances. Oh, I like that. Because what she's appealing to is that there's a whole aspect, a whole at, uh, window of, 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 of connection to God that we miss out on when we don't allow ourselves to, to be open to his presence and perspective in our lives, in our everyday situations. I remember the first song I learned when I was in new members class at my church when I got saved, the first church I was at, and, and it was, what a friend we have in Jesus. It says, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our needs and griefs to bear. And then it went on to say, you know, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We, we forfeit that sense of peace, that sense of presence, and, and we don't have to. God is saying, come, I invite you, all you who are weary and burdened and find rest for your souls. But he not only tells Nehemiah, to, we aren't only told that Nehemiah prayed, we also are told that he fasted. And fasting is this thing that sometimes people are like, all right, now I don't know about all that. This is getting real intense. Why we gotta do that? And, and fasting is this opportunity to withdraw from something in order to pour into more of something. It's, it's an opportunity to take some things away from our lives to make space for more of God in our lives. It's, it's not some aspect of, of punishing myself or, or sometimes we even think it's a bargain with God, right? Like, all right, I'm not going to eat this cheesecake and you're going to give me a boo. Like, that's going to be how we like work this out, right? Like, that's the exchange, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's a barter system. <laughs> And, and that's not how this works. Uh, I love how one pastor, uh, Andrew Bonar, put it. He said, fasting is abstaining from anything that hinders prayer. 
Ooh, I like that. Fasting is abstaining from anything that hinders prayer. So, so as we're about to jump into this fast on Monday, think about the things that hinder your prayer time. Think about the things that, you know, some of us have these devices where we can actually literally see what might be hindering our prayer. We can, we can look at our daily uh, our status report and, and see what might be the things that are deleting time away that we could be spending with God. I'm just trying to help us. Because 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says we are to pray without ceasing. And that's, that means that how constantly have a posture and, and, and a bent and a position toward prayer. It doesn't mean that I can't, that's all I can say when somebody comes up to me, I'm blessed and highly favored the Lord, Jesus Christ, bless you, keep you. you know, no. But it means that there's a, a constant awareness, a growing awareness of God. And that's what fasting allows us to do. It, it helps us to remember God that in that time I'm, I was normally set aside for eating, that I'm setting aside for praying and talking to him, that time that I would normally set aside for doing something else, watching that show, uh, you know, making that post that I'm, I'm actually spending that time with God. But look at, now we get into what he actually says and does. Look at this. And I said, so this is Nehemiah letting us into his prayer life right now. Oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. I'm just going to stop right there at verse five. Now, we already know the context because we've seen the big picture. As soon as Nehemiah heard these words, he mourned and he, and he wept and, and he was broken and he prayed and he said, and look at how he starts his prayer with worship and wonder. He says, oh, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome are you. He just heard that his whole hometown has been destroyed. He just heard that things are not going well for his people. How is it possible that he starts with worship? Well, there's this second principle of effective, building an effective pillar of prayer, and that's called surrender. That, that's how we get there. Let me help us, let me help us get there. Now, now, again, just a little caveat for the uh, legalistic among us or those who are prone to rule following. What I am not suggesting is that there can never be a time when you start an utterance to God and you don't start it with worship. Sometimes you might be in a place where you, all you can say is, help, Lord. I just need help. That's all I got. <laughs> Uh, there, there are moments, there, there are scenarios in which that might be the most appropriate thing. But what we're talking about is as a model, as a, as a perspective, all things being equal, that we can learn from Nehemiah that even when things were not going well, he started with great and awesome are you, O God. And there's an aspect that he reminds, he says, who keeps his covenant. Now remember, this might be looking like a place of tension because he's not sure how the covenant is actually meant. He's saying this prayer in Persia and the actual situation is happening in Jerusalem, but he's by faith saying, who keeps your covenant? I don't know how, I don't know when, but our people who are in Persia, we're gonna end up in Jerusalem somehow, some way. Great and awesome are your name. And, and when you think about that, what he says is there's something to do other than look at the chaos, you can look beyond it and look up to the creator of the cosmos and be reminded of the one who made the skies and go, I don't know how he did that. I can't see the beginning of this sky. I can't see the end of it. And in the same way, I can't see the beginning of my problem and I can't see the end of it, but I serve a God who can. That's what worship, that's what surrender does. Worship reminds us that God is greater than our circumstances. And we need that reminder sometime. All right, all right. Let, me, let me help you. Can I help you? Let me present you with a math problem. 
You ready? Ready? I know some of you are like, oh gosh, I hate math. It's, all, it's a simple, it's a simple problem. All right. I want you to think about this hard. Think about a specific problem that you have in your life. My blank problem. Like just think, it could be a financial problem, a relational problem, a medical problem, just whatever the problem is. Just take a moment. I'm just going to pause for a second. Think about the problem. You got it? Now, is God greater or lesser than the problem that you just spoke of, that you just thought of? Sometimes it might be hard to see, but worship reminds us of the fact that God is greater than my blank problem. Whatever the problem it is, even if I'm not currently experiencing the victory in it, worship reminds us that God is greater than it. And so therefore, I can submit myself and surrender myself and my ways to God because he is greater than my problem. Somebody say God is greater. greater. Amen. And that's why we can have that perspective. Look at now, we don't end there. Look at what happens next. Verse 6a. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I love this because he asks God to listen, to be attentive, and let your eyes be open to see. There's something powerful about being heard and being seen. We've experienced that at times when that's all we want is for someone to just see us when we're struggling. And this brings to the third point, which is supplication. We wanna build the pillar of prayer. We must build it with supplication. Supplication is just a big word that just means making requests known, to admit those things, to identify those things. And, and when we do that, it does, does a couple of things. It's not even just to remind God to meet the need. It's to remind us that God sees, he cares, and he is involved with our process. That's what the supplication does. It's a, it's a, it's a reminder. It's a relationship to say God is actually involved. And look at this, look at this, because when we look at Nehemiah's prayer, he is not only concerned with his own needs and requests, but also those of others. And so when we pray, when we get into our prayer closet, am I only concerned with those who are in the immediate vicinity, my my immediate square mile, or am I also concerned with those who are a thousand miles away like Nehemiah was? Nehemiah was concerned about people, some of whom he didn't even know, in a place that he may never have even seen with his own eyes. But... He was concerned about them, and prayer reminds us to see, hear, and care for others. Is that what your prayer life looked like? Are you making supplication for others around you? But not only does Nehemiah offer a sense of supplication, but but we move on in the second part of the sixth verse. Look at this. It says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, Even I in my father's house have sinned. 
Oh, yeah, he goes there. And, and if we go on further, if you look in the verse, he says specifically what they did. We've acted corruptly. We've not obeyed your commands. We've not obeyed your statutes. Now, look at, check it. The immediate situation he's responding to are people who have destroyed the gates and burned down the walls. And yet he recognizes that in the great scheme of things that there's some aspects in which he has to be held accountable to because his record ain't perfect either. And that's what gives us to the fourth one, which is self examination. We live in a world today where everybody wants to point the finger at everyone else. But as they say, when one finger is pointing out there, you got three others pointing back at you. And there's this aspect where God is wanting us to actually be made right and be made whole. And the way that we do that is by confessing our sins. Confession cleanses the soul. And it's not because we're so great in confessing, it's the one who is doing the cleansing. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. That would be dope and enough, but and purify us from all unrighteousness. Give us a new start. Don't you want to be cleansed? Don't you want to be purified? Don't you realize that there are areas in your life that, that you, you try to maybe keep hidden and, and dark and not a lot of people know about, but God sees and that, that might be preventing you from even being able to see him more clearly. And he's saying, yo, confess, come clean. And there's this corporate nature of it, the corporate nature of the repentance as well, where he's also praying for others, the sins of his people. And there's a weightiness there. And it involves taking what was thought of what was said, what was done, and bringing that from the darkness into the light and acknowledging it. I love what St. Augustine said. He, he wrote confessions 1,600 years ago before Usher, so he had it first. He had it first. He wrote confessions, and, and this is what he said. No one can begin a new life unless he repent of his old. Because you, if you still got skeletons in the closet, if you still got things holding on, then, then you're not going to actually be able to hit the reset button. You got to actually clear out the old in order to make room for the new. Some of us know that when you got that like limited memory in your phone and you want some more pictures, you know, some more video to do, you got to clear out some stuff to make space for the new. Now look at what the next thing that he says in verse 8. Remember the words that you commanded your servant, Moses. And then he goes on to explain what those words were. Those words were a little bit of an indictment. If you are unfaithful, he, Moses said, said about the people, then I, God, will scatter them to the nations. And that's where they found themselves. They had been unfaithful to God and his covenant. They had been unjust to the poor and to the broken. They had created idolatry in their midst. And God had indeed scattered them. We can see that in Leviticus 26, 33, Moses had written the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And one of the things that Moses said in Leviticus 26, 33 is, I will scatter you, says the Lord. But that wasn't the end of the story. God also revealed to Moses, but if you return to me, and my, obey my commandments, then even if you are scattered to the furthest horizons, I'll bring you back. And, and Nehemiah is saying, Lord, don't forget the things that you said. Don't forget your promise. Now, you have to understand, this is an, an extraordinary promise. All right, check it. If you ever look at, if you read the Old Testament, you see a bunch of groups and people's names that, um, like the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, 
the Hivites. And you're like, where are all these ites, right? And the thing that you've noticed, almost none of them are around anymore. They don't exist. They've all been wiped out. You see, the, the people of Israel weren't the only ones that the Babylonians conquered, but they're the only ones that are still around to tell the story. Because God was faithful to his promise. He said, oh no, I'm gonna do something different with y'all. Like, y'all gonna actually be sent away and then I'm gonna bring you back and you're gonna live to tell the, tour, the story. That's an incredible promise. That's an incredible thing. And he said it in his word. That's why that Nehemiah could even have a hope to, to see it fulfilled. We have to have a hold on to scripture and a sense of God's word and praying God's word back to him in order for us to attain the promises of God. Because sometimes it tells us in Romans, hey, we don't even know how to pray right. We'll mess around and start praying for the wrong stuff. <laughs> Won't even pray right. I remember there was a scene in one of the Spider-Man movies. There's been like 10 of them. But one of the early ones when one of his nemesis actually prayed like God killed Peter Parker in the church. And it's like, God ain't trying to answer that type of prayer. But if you're not thinking biblically about things, you'll be praying for people's harm instead of praying for their good, not knowing that that's what God is into. That's what he's about. And that prayer gives us an alignment. So pray back the words of God. Look at the prayers in the Bible. Nehemiah is just one of them. You can look in Daniel chapter nine. You can look at Paul's prayer. You can look at all these ones and, and just see where you can draw those principles back. But then in verse 11, the last verse of the chapter, it says, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now why does Nehemiah tell us this? <laughs> Look at what he says. Give your servant success and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. You see, Nehemiah had a plan. Oh, this prayer wasn't just like, God, like, do something so I don't have to. It was God, do something, empower me, give me the right, right words, and, to give me, and, and Lord, bless this plan. Let me see if this is in your order, in your way, so that I can move toward a solution. But then he got up off his knees, and he went and did something about it. And this was his plan. His plan was to go to the king of all of Persia. See, being the cupbearer meant that he was the one that gave the king his cup to drink out of, which was a very important role, a very trusted role, because oftentimes in antiquity, people would poison the king in order to take over and have a coup. And so the cupbearer would be the one to make sure that nobody, there was a, 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 nobody had poison, nobody had put something in the drink so that he could drink out of. So he had a very close relationship to the king. And his plan was to use that close relationship, leverage that close relationship, and actually ask for some, it's something pretty astonishing. He was going to ask for an indefinite leave from his job so that he could um, go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall that had been destroyed because his people had a tendency to rebel against authority. <laughs> so what he was asking could have been perceived as actually rebellion. He could have been killed for asking something like this because the reason why the wall has been torn down is because Israel had rebelled repeatedly against the Babylonians and they finally got tired of it and said, all right, now we're coming through. So now he's saying, hey, I, I want to leave your presence in serving you so I can go serve a kingdom and a people who are subjected under you. That would have been, that's pretty audacious, but he doesn't end there. And he says, um, so I need some time off, but... I also need you to, I need access to your networks and resources. I need you to send me uh, with letters 
to give me permission to navigate through all the places that a thousand miles that I have to go. But then also, not only do I need access to your networks and time off, but I also need resources. You see, I have no money to pay for this wall. I have no money to pay for the cement or the wood or the stones that are needed or the laborers. So I need you to go into your bank and the bank of Persia and to give me not a loan, but a grant to build up everything that I'm asking for. And one more thing, I ain't coming back until I'm done. <laughs> Who asked this? This would be like going to your job and be like, yo, I'm going back to uh, Haiti to rebuild my homeland which was destroyed by Western imperialism. I need you to give me a grant to make that happen and I'll check you, I'll give you an email or something when I come back, when I'm ready. Like crazy. But guess what? But God. <laughs> but God says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. I'll do that, and I, and I can tell you, I can, I've experienced this type of prayer before. I remember I had just moved to Indiana, and uh, we were driving around, and uh, the situation was my wife and my daughter, and our, our, our situation in our previous place where we lived was that we only needed one car, but now in this new situation, we needed two cars. But there was a problem. See, I was a missionary. We raised support, and we didn't have the type of money to just go around buying another car. It just wasn't in the budget. And so when we realized this, we were literally driving in the car, having dropped off our daughter someplace and was like, yo, we need God to give us a car. But not only do we need a car in particular, we actually need a, a big enough car because we were doing music ministry to put instruments and sound equipment in the back. We need an SUV and we need it for free. <laughs> and it needs to be reliable and we can't pay for it. We need someone to give it to us. So, Lord, please do this. So we were having that conversation. Literally that same day, the same conversation. We park into the parking lot of our, our workplace. One of the other missionaries who also trust God to raise through their finances and support comes up to us and says, I don't know why, but God just put it on my heart to tell you that one of my ministry partners is leaving. He's moving out of the city and he has a SUV, a Ford Explorer ready. And I just wanted to see if you needed that. I'm just saying God already, because of the specifics, had exactly what I needed in mind. Now, I didn't specifically pray about it being a stick shift, and so I had to learn how to drive it. So I wish I would have been a little bit more specific, but God answers and uses the specifics. He will do it. And he did it for me, and he'll do it for you. And in verse 15 of chapter 6, this is what we find. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. This was amazing time. Nehemiah accomplished the work. Now we see Nehemiah pray as he experienced challenges throughout his life. And that's why we have to pray without ceasing. And my last word to you is pray expecting success. Pray expecting success. Don't just pray a defeated way, but pray expecting success. Now, I got to give you a word about that because you see, success might not be what you have in mind. It might not fit your definition of success. You see, Nehemiah had a different vision than thinking that he was even needed to be the one to do the work. But while he was building up a wall, there was another story happening in Ezra. There was somebody that had to build up a temple. You see, the temple had been destroyed too. 
And, and when the people were praying that God would build this, the temple up and, and when it was finished and it was completed, all those who were young and they, old enough to remember the old temple started weeping when they saw the new t- temple. They were sad because it looked nothing like the, the temple that Solomon had built. It would be like being downsized from a, a five-bedroom, two-acre a, a house and then going down to a studio apartment. And they, they were weeping because they were like, man, this, this is just a reminder of how things used to be and how much better they were. And someone told them, don't, don't, don't weep because the latter glory of this place is going to be greater than its former glory. But they look at this little spot and say, how is that possible? And it would take a couple more centuries for them to figure out when a man and a woman would come and dedicate their their baby boy in this same temple. And a prophet, Simeon, would look at that baby boy and say, I can go home and I can die now because my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord in this child. God's salvation has come to his people. And that same baby would then two, three decades later be on a cross on a tree and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And because he prayed that prayer, because he lived that out, because he got up off his knees in, in Gethsemane and he did what he, the work that God had called him to do, we can now have confidence in this pillar of prayer to know that we can boldly walk into the throne of grace and find grace in our need. That's what we have access to. So as we go into this fast this week, as we go into this fast this month, let us go with expecting success. Let us go expecting new things, greater things. Let us go knowing that God is there ready to listen and hear us when we come to him, when we come to him. So I wanna encourage you with this as I close. Think about just 15 minutes. I'm gonna challenge you and stress you to pray 15 minutes each day. Pray thinking about these steps, being silent for like two minutes. Don't say anything. And then start with surrender, worshiping to God. Then go into supplication, asking God for what it is that you need. Look in the scriptures and and, and, and ask according to his word and his will. And when you do that and when when you see that, be specific. Tell God exactly what it is that's on your heart and pray with success. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the fact that you show us that you care about the specifics of our lives. And God, even as there's chaos all around us, help us to see you're the creator of the cosmos that's above us and below us and within us. God, help us to see that you're in control and that you hear us when we pray. Speak to us this week. Help us to see what we're supposed to fast from. Help us to remember that fasting isn't just to take something away, but it's to pour something, more space for you in. And we give you glory for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. 
If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.